God, help us to see today the desire of your heart for Hardy Street Baptist Church and for the people that are here. Lord, I pray that there is someone here today that's never experienced the loving kindness of Jesus, that today would be that day. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, let me take a moment and differentiate these two for you. In ancient days, goodness was a moral, excuse me, uprightness. Goodness was a sense that you could control your passions. Goodness is a sense that you were right with God. And kindness flowed out of that goodness. That goodness is who you are, but kindness is what you do because of who you are. It's an outward manifestation. And so as we think about these two, they go together so very closely as twin gifts, if you will, or twin fruits. Now, the story that I just shared with you may sound amazing, but that's not the end of the story. As we look at the story to say, David, who is to be king, and Jonathan, who could be king, are friends and not enemies. And David promised that he would give blessing and honor to Jonathan and to his family. You could stop there and say, that is kindness. But folks, I want you to see, and I've been so excited all week as I've gotten ready in preparation and study and prayer for this message. That's just a prelude to the story. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and as we look there, we're going to see an amazing story unfold of goodness and kindness and grace. Let me give you the the, the background uh, before we read from this text. King Saul is dead. Many years have passed. In fact, Jonathan is dead as well. Saul's body was impaled on the gates there at Beth Shean as a mockery to show that his kingdom is gone. And a number of years now have passed. David is king. He's been leading well in a number of things. He's been guiding the nation. And his mind rolls back to this promise that he made to Jonathan in Jonathan's living years. Look with me, if you will, at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Then David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He remembers his promise. He goes back in his mind and he remembers that he had promised. You see, here's why this is significant, folks. In those days when a new dynasty was set up, when a new dynasty was established, when a new king rose to power, generally they would round up all of the family members of the former regime and execute them all to ensure there would be no revolt. And David asked the question, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? Sort of a a strange question, if you will. But look at the following with me in verse 2. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. This young man that is crippled is Mephibosheth. It's a Interesting name, hard to say, but fun to say. Everybody say Mephibosheth with me. That wasn't everybody. I knew that I'd get a chuckle or two. It's a, that, yeah, I've been saying it all week long, and it's still a difficult name. Mephibosheth. Now, here's the story. The nursemaid 
grabbed Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, in fleeing after this civil war with David and Jonathan's family going on. And when she fled with him, she fell, she tripped. And the Bible tells us that he, in the fall, was crippled, that he was maimed. Perhaps he broke his ankles or his feet, or perhaps both. And for the rest of his days, suffered this malady of being crippled. He was an invalid. And one commentator said this, the the setting and the healing of a broken bone is radically different in A.D. 2016 from B.C. 1200. And so the broken bones caused him to be crippled for the rest of his days. And some have even said that Ziba here was being condescending. David said, is there anyone left? And Ziba said, yeah, there's one son, but he's crippled. You don't have to worry about him, David. There's no chance of revolt there. He is no problem to you. But that was not David's intent. You see, Mephibosheth either walked on crutches or hobbled along for the rest of the days of his life. And David asked this question, and he goes on in verse 4. Let's look together. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from his house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. David summoned him. This was intentional. It was active. David sought him out. David went looking for him. There's an interesting word picture here I don't want to pass up. Lodabar, where he was. Lo means no, and Debar means pasture land. There was no pasture land. This is a barren place, a desolate place. A wasteland, if you will, somewhere outside the city. And that's where we would find Mephibosheth. He was hiding from the king. Of course he would hide. I mean, the very thought that the king could kill him at a moment's notice. He could see him as a threat because he was of the lineage of Saul. He could have just enacted revenge and said, because the way that Saul treated me, all of his family will be cut off. But David had made a promise to Jonathan. Now here we see this man, he's not living, he's merely existing, hiding. So you can imagine as an easy target for the king, the horror in his heart when the knock came on the door. And he's summoned before the king. Now he bows before the king, interesting. He has to be scared to death. His father Jonathan is dead and David could have easily forgotten or ignored the promise. And in fact, Mephibosheth probably doesn't know anything about that promise. He just knows the king is summoned. Look at verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. Folks, don't run past this moment with me. I mean, what a moment of intensity. This man, let's say he walked on crutches. He, he, in his mangled state, walks directly toward the king, and he throws his crutches down, and he falls at the feet of David, literally not knowing as he cowered if he was going to make through this conversation alive. He's standing before who? David. Who is David? The king of Israel. Who is David? A warrior. Who is David? The one who had sovereign rights over the life of Mephibosheth. A warrior that has killed a bear. 
A warrior that has killed a lion. A warrior that has killed a giant and taken his head off and stood before the people even as a young man. Now he's on the throne and Mephibosheth before him trembling for his life. If you miss the significance of this moment, you miss the beauty of the story altogether. You lose sight of the magnificence of the promise. This is the man that Mephibosheth is standing before. The terror of this moment ought to give significance to the rest of the story. Now, even if he had heard somehow that David wanted to show him kindness, I got to thinking about this. There is definitely precedence. Hang on there with the screen. We'll get to the application in just a moment. There's precedence for a king lying, is there not? I mean, it it happens all the time. I, I thought about it later on. What about King Herod and the wise men? Oh, I would love to worship this new king, Jesus. In fact, if you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is so that I may go and worship him too. Was that Herod's uh, desire? No, he wanted to kill Jesus. And so even if he said, I want to show you some kindness, Mephibosheth, he doesn't know if that means he wants to take my head off. So here he is in terror before David. Look at verses 7 through 10. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? I mean, do you see the the intensity of this exchange? He, He says, Listen, I'm going to be kind to you because of your father, and for the sake of your father Jonathan. He says, I'm going to give you all of the land that your grandfather had, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide for you. And he said, who am I? I I have nothing to offer you in essence. He said, I'm just a dead dog before the glory of you, a king. Let's keep going. What a powerful story. As we read in verse 9, Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba to him and said, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. I I believe that the Holy Spirit... uh, led the writer of Scripture here to write those words to let you know he was about to have 35 servants, plus Ziba, plus all the land. David was saying, I'm going to bless him. What a life-changing moment. He's given property and servants and and a guarantee of provision. Think about this. The king of the land says, you will eat at my table. Mephibosheth, you will now be with me. Being Saul's grandson meant that he was good as dead. His expectation was probably a sword to the neck, but the king says, do not fear. I'm just filled with a a mixture of amazement and gratitude for Mephibosheth as I think about what his heart must have felt in that moment when he asked, "Who, who am I, just a dead dog before you, a king? Listen to this. And, and from this account that I'm about to read, I, I took the title of my message. Chuck Swindoll writes an amazing account of this story, and, and he writes about the dinner table of David's house. 
I, I want you to go there with me for a moment. What a story of grace. God's unmerited favor with a little imagination. We can picture a familiar scene in the king's royal residence. The meal is fixed. The dinner bell rings. Gold and silver fixtures hold the flaming torches that line the palace walls. Low, uh, lofty handcrafted or hand-carved wood uh, ceilings crowned each spacious room, including a banquet hall where David and his family gathered for their evening meals. Now, let's look around the table. In one chair sat tanned, handsome Absalom with his long raven black locks of hair. Next to him sat his beautiful sister Tamar. Across from her sat young and brilliant Solomon who escaped for moments from his study to have dinner with the family. It's supper time. The call has gone out and all the families gathered around the table. The beautiful people, the powerful people, the studious people are here at the king's table. And as David, the dad, scans the room to make sure that all the kids are present, he notices one is missing. It isn't long before everyone can hear a sound. The sound is, is uh, one that they've become accustomed to. And it sounds something like this. Clump. Scrape. Clump. Scrape. Clump, scrape. We don't know the malady of his walking, but we know that with crutches or with some walking device, with his infirmity and his invalid, uh, invalid state, he there is coming to the table. Mephibosheth, of course, is the one. And he slowly shuffles to his place at the table, and he's seated now at the king's table along with the other members of the family. And listen to this, Hardy Street Baptist Church. You better put your seat belt on. Your pew belt better be securely fashioned, because this one will want to make you... This one will make you want to shout. Chuck Swindoll said this, when he's seated at the king's table, the tablecloth of God's grace covered his crippled feet. The tablecloth of his grace covered his crippled feet. That may not have done to you what it's done to me all week long, but I've been an absolute mess thinking about the tablecloth of God's grace covering my feet. The tablecloth of His grace extended to me who owed Him everything and could pay back nothing. I, like Mephibosheth, stand before a king, was hiding from that king, and now He's brought me in. I was an enemy of that king, and He has gathered me to Himself. Wow, what an understanding that we should get. When we think about this story, don't you understand now why I would choose it as one to explain kindness and goodness? There's a great picture here of kindness and goodness. But there's a danger for us, and we'll get to that in a, uh, just a moment. I want to make a little bit of application and then draw this full circle. Here we go. Number one, show kindness to family and friends. The kindness shown to Mephibosheth is simply because of a promise that Jonathan and David had secured. David made the promise to his friend, Jonathan. And I, I would say that there's people here today that say, Pastor, why are you telling me that? I'm good to my family and friends. If we're honest with ourselves, I would bet that there are times that we overlook family and friends. Those that are closest to us sometimes get the short end of the stick. We say, well, they know us, they understand. And we overlook unkind behavior because of that in others. Is that person in your family? Oh, that's just how they are. 
Well, the reality is we need to extend kindness and goodness to our friends and to our family. And the reality is we need to make sure that we're displaying that kind of kindness in an intentional way, a sacrificial way, a continual way. Think about David's response here. David looks for him. He seeks him out. He says, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? He's looking for it. It's intentional. It's sacrificial. It's continual. Well, as we think about that kind of, of love and that kind of kindness shown out of goodness, let me give you the second one. Show kindness to someone who can't return the favor. Show, show kindness to someone who can't return the favor. Now, church, this is gut check time. Do you show kindness to people with an ulterior motive, with a desire to gain from it? Do you show kindness in your life to others, knowing that you might get your back scratched back? Or is it that you can help that homeless person that has no ability to help you back, no ability to enhance you in any way, shape, form, or fashion? Help others. Give kindness. Give goodness. Show your goodness to those who can't return the favor. I'll never forget as we lived in South Haven area up in, in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and, and all through that area, uh, there's a, a, a lot of, of uh, attention paid to St. Jude Hospital there in Memphis. And it's a, a big regional kind of a deal. And nationwide, people know St. Jude. And I'll never forget just a couple of years ago, a, a certain politician, we'll say, came to St. Jude, and there was nothing more than a photo op. In fact, they shut the place down, and they had Secret Service walk through, guard through, and as they guarded through, they made a rule that they were going to limit the number of people in the hospital. So imagine this, you have flown across the country to, with, with a child that has leukemia, and now you're faced with this choice. They said only one parent can go in with the child. And this politician with well-intentioned uh, plans to get credit for this photo op and be shown in St. Jude shaking the hands of people. And I, I, I'm not naming anything about the politician so you don't know anything about who it is and it doesn't matter which side. The ultimate reality is that has nothing to do with goodness and kindness. It was all about a self-serving motive. David gained nothing from the relationship with Mephibosheth from a standpoint of being enhanced other than a relationship because of a promise he had made to Jonathan. Sometimes we need to show kindness to someone who cannot return the favor. Would you agree with that? Amen. He would willingly look for him. David could have gone about his kingly duties and had people waiting on him, but he served Mephibosheth because he cared. It reminds me of the passage in Matthew 25. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to the least of these my brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. You know, it's easy to be selective with our kindness. It's easy to be selective with our goodness and make decisions based on whether or not there's something in it for us. But hear me, church. You experience a fulfillment when God uses your kindness and goodness to touch someone who may not be able to return the favor. And you never know. You never know how that love may impact somebody else's life. I, I love this quote of Mark Twain. I don't often quote Mark Twain, but he said these words, that kindness is the language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Number three, show kindness when it may not be deserved. 
Show kindness when it may not be deserved. Saul's family had been harsh to David. Once Jonathan died, David could have just easily changed his mind and he could have said, all bets are off. But you know what I'm learning? The fruit of the Spirit is all about the undeserving. We love the unlovable. We show joy to the joyless. We show kindness and goodness to those who don't deserve it because that's what God does for us. You think about the love of God extended to us, His grace. I love the word loving kindness over and over again in the Old Testament. It's just a picture of the word grace. And here, that's what David promised to extend. I will extend grace to your family, Jonathan. And it was undeserved. Now, there's an interesting part of the story as we think about King David adopting Mephibosheth. I mean, it's a lifetime commitment. It's a sacrifice. But there's a third and final part to the story. Sometimes you can give people a lot, and instead of them continually being grateful, they'll stab you in the back. They'll turn on you and expect more. Sometimes they're even critical. No matter the outcome, listen to this, the Spirit-filled Christian should always take the high road and continue on the path of kindness. If we were to look at 2 Samuel 19, just a little farther, Ziba would come to him. David had fled. Now you say, why would David be fleeing? He's the king. David had a, an uprising with his son Absalom, and he began to flee. And as he was fleeing, then he found himself coming back. And as he came back, after the insurrection had been put down, and Mephibosheth had stayed right there. And Ziba told David this, that Mephibosheth maybe wants to be king. He, he has a possible uh, motive to want to be king. And Mephibosheth, when confronted about it, says, My Lord, he's slandering me. He said, I tried to get on my donkey, and because of my, my condition, I couldn't get there. Ziba wouldn't help me. I wanted to go with you. And David's left probably in that moment with a, a, a big question mark. Have I done the right thing? Should I have just killed him off and ended this? Some commentators say David tested him in this. I, I, we won't fully know until we get to heaven, but here's what he said. He said, everything that I've given you, Mephibosheth, I want you to give half of it to Ziba. And you know what Mephibosheth said? He can have it all. I just want to be with the king. Listen to that. He can have it all. I don't want the stuff. I just want the relationship with the king. Leads me to really believe that Mephibosheth was grateful for the tablecloth of grace extended over his crippled feet. Now, I told you a moment ago, there's a danger in this. I want everybody, I, I shared this at, at uh, youth camp. I want everybody to sit up straight and take in a deep breath. Everybody. All right, I just want to see you shuffle a little bit. You can blow that deep breath out now, by the way. I need to give that instruction too, I guess. You don't have to hold it. I want everybody to focus with me for a moment. There's a danger in a story like this to compare ourselves with David and say, I need to be more kind. I need to let the goodness of Jesus that's in my heart show itself outwardly to others. And while there is a true pattern there that we need to let the goodness of God, the fruit of the Spirit of goodness, show itself in kindness, can I tell you there's a deeper story here? 
And the deeper story is this. I'm not David in this story. You're not David in this story. You're Mephibosheth. You are spiritually crippled. You are absolutely helpless. You are hopeless without the uh, intervention of the king. David is a prototype of our heavenly king, Jesus. And we are paralyzed by sin spiritually. And God knocks on the door of our heart, inviting us to join Him and to sit at His table and to feast on His bounty and have a relationship with Him and be adopted into His family forever. Don't lose sight of this. I want to give you just a couple of analogies that we see in this. In fact, I want to give you eight. And some of you said, oh my goodness, eight more points. These will go quick, but I promise you they'll bless you. Number one, think about this. Mephibosheth was once in the family of a king. Adam and Eve were in the family of a king. They understood what it meant to walk with God in the coolness of the day. And when tragedy struck, Mephibosheth, this is number two, Mephibosheth faced a great fall, and in his fall, it left him crippled for the rest of his life. For you and for me, we faced a fall, and it left us spiritually crippled when sin came in. And the first response of the human heart is to hide from God. Number three, David the king, out of sheer love for Jonathan, demonstrated grace to his handicapped son. And God, our heavenly Father, out of sheer love for his son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice that he made on Calvary's cross, demonstrated grace to believers that would trust him. I don't want you to lose sight of the gospel that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. When we see the story of Mephibosheth, when the king comes calling, is a sermon that was preached one time about this. The idea that Jesus searched out for us. Mephibosheth had nothing, deserved nothing, and could repay nothing. In fact, he didn't even try to win the favor of the king. He was hiding from the king. And guess what? When you and I were lost and separated from God in our sin, we had nothing. We deserved nothing. We could repay nothing. We were hiding from God in our sinfulness, and he sought us out, and he found us, and he brought us to himself and says, you have a place at my table. You will eat at my table like all my other sons. Some of you look at your life, and maybe you think about a time in your life when you were involved in what I would simply call futility. Maybe it was an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Maybe it was just a, a pursuit of money or pleasure. Moving from one confusing episode to another and wondering where it would all lead. You offered nothing to God. You had nothing to give Him. And yet the king set his heart on you. And he demonstrates love and forgiveness that we can't earn, that we don't deserve, and that we could never repay. That's grace. That's grace. That is the loving kindness of our heavenly Father. Number five, David restored Mephibosheth from a place of barrenness to a place of honor. He found him in a place of barrenness. And this is what I would call restoration. He went from a place of no pasture land to the very place of plenty, right in the courtroom of the king. He restores us. The king sets us in this place of restored living. Number six, David adopted Mephibosheth. And we could spend all the rest of our days 
just trying to contemplate what it means that God would choose us in adoption and he would bring us into his home. We who were orphans, we were, we were far away from God and helpless and hopeless and he brought us in. And in fact, in those days, you could not disown an adopted son. You could, you could disown a son of birth. You could say you were dead to me. But if you had chosen by adoption to bring a son in, you could never, ever re, uh, turn them away. And he here had said to him, I want you in my family. You will be a part of my life in that way. Number seven, and I want you to hear this. This is important. Mephibosheth's disability was a constant reminder of his need for grace. He had nothing but crutches, yet was given the plenty of the king. And every time he limped into one place from another, every time he limped one step in front of the other, he was reminded, I am in this magnificent palace enjoying the pleasures of this position only because of the grace of the king and nothing else. I don't know about you, but every once in a while in my sinfulness and my brokenness and my flesh, I cry out to God all the more and say, oh God, I need you. Every hour, I need you, Jesus. It was a constant reminder of the beauty and the magnificence and the scandalous love that God has lavished upon those who would trust Him. The eighth and final analogy is this. When Mephibosheth sat down at the table, he was treated like any other son of the king. Kindness and goodness are more than just a do better, try harder, be nicer mentality. It's a scandalous expression of lavish love that comes from the Spirit of God. And so that takes me to two other places in our focus. Number four, show kindness as a reflection of the grace of God. You say, I'm not telling you that this is just all about receiving kindness. I'm telling you that we need to turn around as an expression and an extension of the grace of God to others. Ephesians 4.32, go look it up. It plainly says that we need to extend grace because we've received grace. But number five is maybe the most important thing I can say. You see, I preached this whole sermon so I could tell you one thing. Receive the loving kindness of Jesus today. If you've never experienced that kind of grace, maybe you find yourself spiritually paralyzed and longing and looking and hoping and wondering if there's any place of joy for you, if there's any place of hope for you. And I want to tell you today, yes, there is. There is a king who is knocking on the door of your heart even this morning, beckoning you, saying, come and sit at my table. Come and let my tablecloth of grace cover your infirmity. Come to me today. If you've never been saved today, trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fruit of the Spirit as included through the Holy Spirit's writing this scripture in Galatians. Goodness and kindness is part of the fruit because this is the heart of our God. He is gracious toward us. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the gospel. When we weren't looking for Him, when we weren't desiring Him, He was pursuing us. Today, perhaps there's an area of your life where you've not expressed and extended kindness and goodness to others. And that's the need of your life. Today, perhaps, you need to experience for the very first time 
the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have a, a song of invitation and decision, and we invite you boldly to come to Jesus. We invite you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ today, to be saved today. We invite you to join with the fellowship of this church if that's the desire of your heart and that's the way that God is leading you. You let God have his way as we sing this song together. Let's all stand together at this time.